are listening to the weekly message at Woods Chapel Blue Springs, where it doesn't matter who you are or where you are coming from, everyone is included, accepted, and loved. For more information, please visit us at woodschapelbluesprings.org. Well, good morning. Uh, normally, we would have like a fun video here where you would get to see some kind of creative thing for our sermon series. And so now you're just going to have this awkward place where Abby and I are going to try to share the stage for the next 30 seconds. And so um, I'm going to slowly move up here. We had a rough morning. Anybody else had a rough morning? Anybody at home? Everybody in the room had a great morning, just so you know. Nobody said anything. I'm not saying that you had a rough morning. So apparently everybody's doing great and fine and dandy. Uh, we have no internet. We have no screens. You know, just all the stuff. And so normally I would be up here and you see me bring my cell phone up and I put it up here. And that's my timer. So I know when to quit preaching. Well, my cell phone's being used to stream this. So we're going to be here for a while. <laughs> like, I don't know when to quit. I mean, literally, like in life in general, like, I don't know when to quit. So I'm going to look at my watch. That's about 10.27-ish, so that means I need to be done by 11.30. Okay. Oh, you guys are good at math. All right. Um, it's a beautiful day. It's going to be a great day. It's a holiday weekend. I hope to get some sun this afternoon to relax a little. Um, well, this morning, we're going to continue on this sermon series called The Games We Play. We're talking about board games. Board games we played as a kid. Now, how many of you play Monopoly? Come on, raise your hands at home. Let me see them. I love, loved, will continue to love Monopoly. It's my game. It's my favorite game. Out of all four of these series of these sermons, Monopoly, I've been looking forward to this one. Excuse me. Okay. Um, I'm going to trip over something this morning. So. And so. Uh, Monopoly, you know, if you haven't played, uh, and I don't know, I can imagine nobody's going to but if you haven't played Monopoly, it's this game where you go around a board and you buy properties. And then when you get those properties, you can you get all three matching properties, there's three to most of them. Then you can buy houses, then if you have enough houses, you can buy hotels, and you can charge people rent, you collect money, you collect property and wealth and money and power, and it's great! <laughs> I love Monopoly. And I don't lose. Because if I do start to lose, I just quit. It's really easy. So, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't quit. Start over. And uh, as a kid, I love this game. I love the game so much that we, uh, we used to play it all the time. I mean, almost five. So, my poor siblings probably hate this game because I would force them to play it nonstop. Uh, and I would win every time. And so, it got to the point where uh, at one point we moved in with my grandmother. We had some struggle, and we moved into her house, and I, we were moving in, and we were putting our things away, and I opened a closet, and this closet is just full of games, right? Now, we already own Monopoly, but uh, the closet had another Monopoly set, so I'm playing with my brother, Josh, and my sister, Angela, one day, and we're playing this game of Monopoly, and, and I'm winning, and I'm collecting all the stuff, right, all the properties, and, and I just, um, I was notorious for trading. Maybe because I was much older and I could get them to make really bad trades with me. Uh, that's horrible. I wish I was a better person. And so uh, we're playing this game and I, I had so much money and so many houses. You know, you know I had so many houses in the game? You don't know this? 
Like, if you run out of houses, like, you're not supposed to go buy anymore. But I'm like, ooh, there's the second game in the closet. And so I went and got the second game out of the closet because I needed more houses, right? And then more hotels. And it's supposed to be limited on purpose, right? It's supposed to be a limited amount of houses and hotels. But I needed more. I needed more money, right? So you have like two different kinds of money and two different styles of house, but I didn't care. I think all the diversity, right? And so, I didn't even know that word, but I was that age. But, and so I'm playing this game, and I'm just like, I just, this is the best thing in the world. And uh, it was great. And I look back, and I'm like, you know, like, the games we play, I think I said this last week, probably didn't teach us the best lessons in life. I think about it for a minute. If you won by hoarding everything, right, by collecting things, and I collected so much, I needed a second game piece, second game set of pieces in order to, like, you know, show my dominance and power. And this is how bad it is. I, they would quit and get mad at me, and I would just, like, keep playing, like, saying, like, be their piece, and I roll the dice, and I go for them, and they might land on me. <laughs> I took their money even when they weren't there. And so, this is, um, this is, like, one person's laughing, nobody else. Okay, so this is, this is what we're trained to do from children, to collect, to hoard, uh, all these things, right? And, and you always dread it. I was talking to Allison, Allison and I swim in front together. Or 89. And I'm talking to her, she's like, you know, I always dreaded coming around, you know, you know what the green ones are? You know, like the, the go to jail one, the, the green one, there's like boardwalk and park place, there's like a luxury tax and all of those. I dreaded going around that side. And she's like, you know, there's people in our community culture who, that's real life for them. Like there are those of us who hoard and collect things. And usually what happens is when we hoard and collect, when we take all the surplus, when we put it all in our own pockets, that means there's less for the people, right? There's only so many resources in life. And there are people in life, and I've been one of them, that when we end up in that phase of life, we're fearful of what's to come. We're fearful of the boardwalk and the park places and those who have done better than us, possibly. And it causes separation, and it's all due to what? The fact that we hoard. That we like to collect things, that we like to keep everything uh, for ourselves. And so we're going to talk about that. And I think these games have taught us maybe some unhealthy behaviors. Uh, we started off with the game Sorry. How many of you said sorry and not lamented? Probably this morning. I don't know. I was apologizing to Abby. I don't think I meant it. Um, I was giving her a hard time. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I didn't really mean it. I like giving you a hard time. And so. Uh, but that taught us that, you know, and then we, uh, we talked about the words we use with Scrabble, right? Some of you, not me, some of you cheated in that game and taught us that cheat. And then last week we talked about balance. We talked, I had the big Jenga in here. And uh, life teaches us, that game teaches us that we just move pieces around. We don't ever filter, we don't ever cut out, we don't ever remove. And so I think we struggle because I think from a young age, we're taught unhealthy behaviors of what culture and community and faith should look like. And today I'm going to challenge you a little bit with this game of Monopoly and how it teaches us to hoard and how our default is to do that. I mean, I think that's our default. Our default is that we live in fear. We're afraid there's never going to be enough. Because why do we live in fear? I mean, that's probably a name. It's probably something within us. But everywhere you go, any advertising you see, anything in the media, anything on social media, anything on the news is all geared and programmed to make you afraid of something. 
I'm afraid I don't, what, look good enough, so I need better clothes. I'm afraid I don't have enough, so I need a larger savings account. I'm afraid I'm not keep, keeping up with the Joneses, so I need the better car. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Right now we're in a political season, and what are we afraid of? The other, whatever your affiliation is, however we define ourselves, we're afraid of the other. And everything in our culture and in our community reinforces that fear. And so because of that, I believe we live in this state of fear. And we try to counteract that fear by hoarding things. Not just money, not just stuff. We hoard power. We hoard authority. We hoard everything in life and we tend to keep it for us and to not share for those around us. Now, I have a, a really nice house. It's a larger house. We, my mom and my sister were living with us. We decided we wanted another house. But when we were house shopping, one of the things that was a must-have was we had a two-car garage before was I needed that third bay. Anybody have like a storage unit out back or like a third-car garage? Again, nobody in the room has a third-car garage. For those of you walking, watching out, our arms are broken today. And so, uh, or storage unit. And so anyway, so I had a third-car garage because I needed to collect all the stuff, right? All the collection of stuff that I had, I needed more space. So we got the house, I had bigger, more storage in my basement in a third-car garage. Now my wife has taken over half of my third-car garage. Yeah, let's be honest, more than half. She has a lot of, she has lots of things. I mean, you know, she's gardening stuff and it doesn't leave enough room for my tools. So I need like more storage now. And how, you do this, who has a storage unit? Come on, you guys. I'm just going to hang out here until you guys are ready for this. <laughs> there we go. There's one. And I guess you raise your hands. I'm taking out of time. Those of you at home, I know you're sitting at home on your couch in your bathroom doing this. And so, uh, a lot of us have had a storage unit or that third park garage where we put that shut up out back. You know the self-storage industry is a $40 billion a year industry? Four zero with a B. Billion. We spend $40 billion a year to hoard things, to collect things. And they don't fit in our houses anymore, and so we put them in storage units. You know two of the biggest projects of Blue Springs right now? Guess what they are? We just opened one. I'm a member of the Chamber of Commerce. We just did a ribbon cutting last week for a large storage facility on I-70, and there's one on 7 Highway. Now, I'm not against the self-storage industry. Like, if you own a self-storage facility, more props to you. I'm just specifically pointing out that we have so much crap so much, so many things that we have to rent facilities away from our homes to store our stuff. And we buy homes, we get rid of the old homes, we move, and we get new homes that have more and more and more storage to store what? What do we need that's so important that we have to just hold on to? Now you're talking to a hoarder because I can't throw anything away. Uh, fun fact, I have a refrigerator at my house for like, 14 years, and when we got it, like, the, the first weekend, it's not making ice. And so I went out and bought those little silicone ice trays, you know, and I put water and I put it in the freezer, and my family's like, Dad, we need a refrigerator that makes ice, right? It's the worst thing in the world. Hashtag first world problems. And so, and I'm like, no, we're not going to get a new refrigerator. And so I thought, like, 13, 14 years before we finally bought another used one last year. And so, it's a little stress and deep up, but I, I can't throw things away. Like, I struggle with this. I grew up poor, 
And so I um, already have that scarcity mindset. And then, of course, all around us, that scarcity mindset, that spirit of is not enough, is just constantly reinforced and pushed into us. Now, I wish this was a new condition. Like, I wish that we just struggled with this in America and that the rest of the world and the rest of humanity throughout time didn't. But guess what? Like every week that I tell you, the human condition of hoarding, the human condition of being scared and afraid and collecting and buying more and more and more things is not new. It's not new. It's been with us since the very, very beginning. And so in this book, there are stories. Richard Rohr will say this. He says, stories about there being order in life and then disorder and then reorder. And the Bible is full of stories that go into circular motion, right? We call these cycles in life. And so you hear words like cycles of poverty, cycles of violence, cycles of, and you name it. There are cycles that we find ourselves in. I would say in our humanity, we find ourselves in cycles. And I'm going to point out to you this morning that we are in one of those cycles. So I want to go back to the very beginning. The very beginning of our origins in the Hebrew tradition. Now in the Hebrew tradition, so our faith comes from Hebrews. Right? We know us as the Jewish faith today, but our roots are in Hebrewism. And the Hebrews were slaves. And in the Hebrew tradition, uh, the thought is one of the first books ever written down, because the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, called the Pentateuch, or the Torah, were stories that were told orally, around a campfire, around dinner tables, and at some point they wrote all these stories down. And they believe one of the first stories written down was the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus describes the exiting of Egypt from when they were slaves. It gives the whole entire story. And a lot of people, at least in the, the Hebrew tradition, the Jewish tradition, that was the first book. And the people began asking questions, well, how did we get here? And so then they wrote Genesis, because they already had the stories they told them around campfires. And so that, you know, they said, okay, yeah, in the beginning, there was this. And they told about creation story and where we come from and this idea of Adam and Eve and which just means you know, our beginnings and where we come from, our roots, and there's a flood story, right? And what we find is in cultures, other cultures, we see similar stories. There's a flood story in everybody's history, so that's not unique to Christianity or Judaism. And so they, they said, yeah, we've told these stories around campfires for years, and here's where we come from. The first book where they really started to document stuff was Exodus. And Exodus is just them being freed and released from slavery, from oppression. Those are the roots of our faith. Those are the roots of who we are. And that story speaks to us because we all at some point have felt oppressed. We have felt like we have been made less than. We've been treated poorly. And so this story speaks to us because it's who we are as people. And I want to read, um, I didn't copy it, so I'm just going to read from my notes here. I want to read from the first chapter of Exodus. Right? Egypt is the world power. Egypt has all the power, they have all the wealth, and they have everything. And they're using the Israelites, the Hebrew people, as slaves for their stuff, to build their stuff. Okay? So they have so much stuff, they don't know what to do with it, they're the world power, and they begin hoarding. So in Exodus 1, the very first chapter, verse 11, it says, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. So you have, you have the Egyptians using slave labor from the Israelites, right? And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So you have the Egyptians, who are the superpower, and they are using slave labor. They are oppressing people, treating them poorly, not feeding them well, whipping them, beating them, 
to do what? Because they have so much, they have to build entire cities to store stuff. Entire cities. Think about that for a minute. Entire cities in which they can store stuff. Yet, the people who are building it are starving, are dying, are being beaten into submission to work. These are our roots. This is where we come from. Okay, so that's Exodus. At the very beginning of Exodus, that's the deepest roots of who we are. Right? It's an ancient, old, old story. So the first, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Levit Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then we get to Deuteronomy, right? So they're free. Uh, the, the Israelites leave. If you've ever heard the story of Moses, or the Ten Commandments, uh, Moses leads them out of Egypt, right? And they cross the Red Sea, and they're in the wilderness for forever, and you know, all, all that stuff. Now we get to Deuteronomy. Now, the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, is filled with lots of what we would call prophetic stories. And so you also have prophets, and you have prophets like Daniel, you have prophets like Isaiah. These are books that prophesy. Now, when they use the term prophesy in the Hebrew, the Hebrew tradition, prophesy doesn't necessarily mean that God gave me a vision um, about the future, or I saw the future. Prophecy is this ability to look back and see the pattern and then to tell people, if we don't change something or fix something, we're going to end up in the same pattern. And the Bible, look at any history book. Any history book is this a repeat of pattern over and over and over and over again. And so to be prophetic, to prophesy about the future, is simply to look back and say, hey, if we make those mistakes, we're going to end up in the same place that everybody else did. Which is what happens. Okay? So in Deuteronomy... Uh, there's this spelling out of what we should do. There's this, how do we deal with this? Uh, and, and it talks about where they come from and how do they deal with leadership? How do they deal with judges? How do they elect them? What do they do with a king? And so in, in Deuteronomy 16, uh, it says this. This is, this is prophecy. It says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. So don't forget where you come from. You are a part of this thing. You come from slavery. And follow carefully these decrees. So it's going to get, this is how you should operate. This is what you should do to avoid what? Avoid the thing we've done in the past. So they're saying, in order to have a better future, right? If our hope is always forward and never backward, our hope is that we can do things differently in the future than how we've done them previously. And there's some kind of default thing within us. Uh, we're programmed a certain way. We're created a certain way. Whatever that, however you describe that, we default back to this thing. The Bible calls this sin, selfishness, right? We do things, we get to a spot where we do things for our own benefit, not the benefit of others. So it says to do this and to follow, these, to, to follow carefully these decrees. And it says, it tells all kinds of things. It says, do not pervert, pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept the bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God has given you. Now, if you listen to that, justice is mentioned three times. We're going to come back to the idea of what justice is. Uh, but the author of Deuteronomy, the person writing this down, is like, listen, you were slaves, right? Going forward, don't do these things. So you go to chapter 16. It talks about how they are going to elect a king, the person that is fit to be a king. It says, the king, moreover, should not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. 
He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. This is very smart people, leaders in their organization of the Israelites, who are saying, this is what happened before. Power and money, possession of things, hoarding of things, always corrupts. Always. Always corrupts. And so, if you're going to elect leaders for your people, for your community, the leaders should not be in the practice of taking bribes. Right? And I'm really glad that our leaders in this country aren't allowed to take bribes to get elected into office through super PACs. It says, the leaders should not have many wives. Now, is he talking about polygamy here? No. Marriage, back in, in the day, thousands, so the, the Exodus happened probably 3,300 years ago, about 1,300 BC. Uh, wives were marriages were a contract. It was the merger of two families. So think of a treaty between two countries. Think of a merger of two companies. The more wives you had, the more property, possessions, alliances that you had. So speaking out against that, that's not good to have all those things and that much power and control. And then it talks about, so not, not a lot of wives, not a lot of um, gold, and horses. Now horses was just a possession um, Maybe it represented, think of military type terms, okay? So, uh, Deuteronomy says that's the kind of leaders you should have. We see a pattern here, right? Don't do this because you'll end up like the Egyptians. So, um, the people are free. They spend, you know, 40 years in the wilderness. They're free. They have this culture. And we get to about, we get about 300 years later. Just before that, maybe, maybe 100 years before that, the people say we finally want a king. And guess what? They have instructions for picking a king. The people come together and they choose a, they choose a king. This guy's name is Saul. Saul is king. And uh, Saul is replaced by David at some point. David has a son named Solomon. Solomon becomes king. So he's the third king. So we're not talking about like hundreds and hundreds of kings. He's the third king. One generation from when king started. And under Solomon's leadership, the entire uh, culture crumbles, it dissipates, it goes into exile. And so, um, but let's talk about Solomon's influence. We read about Solomon's life in First Kings, and we read about this. He says, here's the accounts of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the walls of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Medegido, and Gezer. So, just a short time later, so, Egyptians leave Egypt, right? They've learned their lesson. We're going to do this better. We're going to create a new culture, a new community. Within 300 years, but only the 13th, by the time they had a king, so by about 1,000 BCE, Solomon comes into power. And it's honestly considered the golden age of, of Judaism uh, because they grew and expanded. But what Solomon is doing is he's using slaves to build a wall around the city to build a church or a temple for God and to build his own house. Not only that, you go down a few more verses in verse 19. He says, as well as his store cities and towns for his chariots and his horses. Solomon has become what? Deuteronomy was fairly prophetic, right? 
Don't choose a king who has all these things. Of course, Solomon talks about he had hundreds and hundreds of wives. He talks about all the silver and gold that he has. And he talks about these three towns that he's building. Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Right? These are military bases. Right? The term Megiddo actually, when translated into current English, is Armageddon. Right? This is a military base that had been there for 5,000 years. A Solomon, in one of his deals to marry the wife or the daughter of the Pharaoh, merges in and takes his powerhouse. You can see how it comes full circle. The Israelites come from being the oppressed to being the oppressors. Why? They were building entire towns. Again, they had so much. They're building entire towns and cities just to store their stuff, just to store their crap, right? Now that's big scale, that's a large scale, that's a big picture. Two thousand or a thousand years later, Jesus is born. Jesus starts his ministry. He's meeting with people, so he would have had that premise. He would have understood that the, the that prophetic things were that we're not going to repeat the pattern. We're going to end the cycle. We're not going to keep doing that over and over and over again. Right? And so he tells this story, one that I don't like. He tells a story about this guy. He had so much stuff, he had done so well that he tore down his old barns, right? So he went from being in governments, uh, management of people, uh, building entire cities. Jesus makes it personal. Jesus says, listen, there's this guy. He's done really well. And what he does is he, he has so much grain, so many crops, that he has to tear down his old barns. What's a barn? A barn is a storage unit. He has to tear down his old barn, and he has to build a new one and store all his stuff in it. He needs all this space. Meanwhile, his workers are what? Starving and hungry. And he says, as soon as he does, he relaxes. Ooh, I have enough. I can relax now for a little bit. I can be comfortable. And Jesus is telling the story. That this always makes me comfortable. And then God comes out of nowhere and says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? How are you going to benefit from this? Tonight you're going to die, and then what of all that? And the guy dies. And Jesus goes, this is what it's like to hoard. It's death. Now that seems really harsh. Seems kind of mean. The point that Jesus is getting to is that when we hoard things, we take for ourselves more and more and more. There's less for other. There's less for those around us. There's less and less and less. <clears throat> I mean, Jesus also finds this rich young man like, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? What does Jesus tell him? Sell everything to the poor. We find ourselves in this cycle. And you know, you would think after 30 some odd hundred years of documented hoarding, right? Of documented hoarding, that it leads to destruction, that leads to a dark path, it leads to death. You would think after thousands of years we'd have this figured out. And so America is birthed in the 1700s, right? Part of our origin stories of America is John Wesley. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement, or a Methodist church. John Wesley was the one, he didn't set out to start a church, he just set out to reform. And so John Wesley comes along. And John, this is this mid-1700s, mid to late 1700s. So this is 250 plus years ago. John Wesley comes along, America's new, we're at a new start, right? We've been taxed to death, you know, we're free, we're going to do something new, we're going to do it right this time. And in early America, they're struggling. 
And so John Wesley writes this credo, this manifesto, however you want to say it. And so I brought his original words, but they're weird. They say, be ye ready to distribute to everyone according to their necessity. So they've been rewritten. And I want to read those because you, know, you think in John Wesley's day, 17, whatever, that, you know, it had been thousands of years that we saw with this, and we know there was a better way. And you think we would have figured it out. But Wesley's number one thing we need to do was reduce the gap between the rich and poor people. 1700s, this was written. Help everyone to have a job. Help the poorest, including a living wage. Offer the best possible education. Help everyone to feel that they can make a difference. Promote tolerance. Promote equal treatment to women. Create a society based on values and not on profits and consumerism. End all forms of slavery. Avoid getting into war. Share the love of God with everyone and care for the environment. 1700s, John Wesley is writing this. It was important to early America that we do those things. And if you look out right now, what are we talking about right now? I don't care what side of the political spectrum you fall on, but what are we talking about? There's a gap between rich and poor. You know, some of the wealthiest people during this recession have doubled or tripled their net worth while the poor have growingly, increasingly gotten poorer and poorer just in the last six months. We hoard. We haven't quite figured this out. Of course, Solomon does this, and the entire kingdom collapses at the end of his reign. They had acquired so much, they had hoarded so much, it caused so much disparity amongst people that the entire kingdom collapses and they find themselves in exile. And they themselves become slaves. We can't seem to figure this out. But in Deuteronomy, when I'm reading that scripture, in chapter 16, it mentions justice three times. Justice, 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 seek justice. And there's this idea. There's this idea that goes back thousands and thousands of years ago called justice. Last week I talked about scales and how life should be balanced. And if you think of who, what justice is, what's the image? What's the American image? A woman with a blindfold and scales in her hand. That justice is blind. We think of justice as what? As part of our legal system. But in the Hebrew tradition, in our roots, justice is so much more than that. Justice means equality. It means shared everything. That we all can participate and be equal, not just in a legal sense, but with everything that we have. Justice doesn't just include legality, it includes our possession. To participate in justice, the, the, the Greek, no, not the Greek, the Hebrew word is, is mishpat. Mishpat is this idea that we have all things in common. We see this in the early church in Acts, that all things were in common. All things were spread amongst people. Everybody had access to resources and power and wealth and things and legality. Everything was equal. Instead of America, we boil it down to just our legal system. But our heritage spreads it out so much more than that. Now, there's two words that go hand in hand. It's justice, which is this fat, and then it's, I gotta look, it's tzedka. This is the Hebrew word that goes hand in hand. You find them together over and over in the Old Testament. It's translated as righteousness. Now, that's a weird word. Uh, Jesus invites us into righteousness, right? Jesus mentions that word. Jesus even says, I didn't come to call the righteous, 
uh, I came to call the other. So there's this idea that righteous, there are righteous people. And often when we use the word righteous, what do we think of? No, it's not a hippie term from California from the 80s, not that righteous. Righteousness is not that we pray and are solemn or in one with whatever. Righteousness comes from that root word which is tied to justice. Righteousness means to make right, to participate in justness. So to become righteous means that you are participating in making things right and equal to everybody. That is what our Old Testament talks about when it uses those two Hebrew words over and over and over again. That we are called into righteousness to make things right to other, to those around us who are marginalized or oppressed. Right? And the Bible defines this. Those who are righteous do what? They take care of the widow. They take care of the orphan. They welcome the immigrants. And they love the poor. Those are the four things in the Bible which define righteousness. That is how we make the world right. Of course, Wesley added a few things in there, right? This idea is like, maybe we should have better living wages for people. You know? And I'm not getting political here. I'm telling you about thousands of years old stories that we are still struggling with. And we still can't seem to figure it out. And so what happens? Where are we in this cycle right now? Now, I'm not saying the world's coming to an end. I don't believe that. If your candidate doesn't get elected in November, the world's not going to come crashing down, and your opposing candidate is not the Antichrist. I'm going to say that over and over again for the next six to eight weeks. That's a precursor to a sermon I'm doing before the election. There you go. But we have to do things better. We have to recognize that our hope lies within the future, and that we can do things differently, and we can change it by looking back. By saying that we recognize there are things that have led to destruction and death and horrible, horrible, horrible situations of slavery and other pushing people to the fringes. And the way we fight that, the way we combat that, is by being just, by being righteous. Not by being right, but by making things right. And honestly, a lot of that revolves around money. It revolves around things. I mean, if we, so here's, here's a challenge. There are a lot of us, I, I, I'm a firm believer, we cannot be righteous people. We cannot participate in justice if we do not know our financial situation. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but there are a lot of people who don't even have a budget in their life. They don't know their financial situation. They don't know where they're at. They don't intentionally participate in justice. Now, I'm not selling you this to say get to the church. I think that should be a part of it, 100%. I believe in what we're doing. We are participating in justice and righteousness. What I'm saying is that everything we have in life, if we don't know where we are, if we don't know what our starting point is, how can we then participate in that if we don't even know where we stand? If we don't have intentional steps on which to reach out to equalize, to participate in this justice. And so one of the things we do here in order to help people along in that journey is there's this guy named Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey's this financial guru. And Josh Latta, I don't know if he's in here or not, I can't see. I don't know if he's in here, but Josh Latta teaches this class called Financial Peace University. 
where we teach people the importance of what it is to make money. So I'm, I'm not sitting here telling you that we shouldn't make money, we shouldn't do things. Because if people don't make the money, like, you begin to give it. It's always the second part. We're good at making it, aren't we? Ooh, we're good at making it. We're just not good at letting it go. We want to, right? And then what do we do? Then we spend more and more money protecting that money on the security. And like, that's a whole other My challenge to you is, is this. There has to be a starting point in your life in which you can participate in true justice. And that's with the self-realization that you are probably hoarding things. Money, possession, power, authority. Whatever those things are that you're hoarding, that you're keeping to yourself, find a way to open up your arms and letting go of those things. Now most of us relate and link to financial. Start somewhere. So here's a challenge to all of you. If you have a budget or if you're not, I want to challenge all of you to go through this course. This course teaches us how to manage money. You might think you know how to manage money. This course may enlighten you. Sign up for it and uh, send an email to myself, Amy, to Josh, to somebody. And it's once we're within the parameters of a budget, it's once we have an intentional uh, ability to, to, to participate in justice, to give, to live a generous life, that is when true justice starts to happen. That is when we participate in righteousness. So my challenge to you is simply that. Find a way to begin on a path and a journey towards righteousness, towards justice. You know, one of the ways that we participate in that, at least in the Christian tradition, ooh, I'm way over, I told Justin to do that, is this thing called communion. You know, Jesus, uh, smart guy, Jesus sat at a table with his friends. Now, if y'all recognize, there's these little communion cups, and I mean, each one of your chairs, for all you members of you who are in the room, and for those of you at home, I secretly snuck into your house and put one under your couch. I'm just kidding. Uh, so, if you're at home, grab a biscuit, grab some juice, grab some coffee, whatever it is. But Jesus sat around a table with his friends. Now, now why are tables important? Tables are important because at a table, Everything is just, right? Everything's equal. At a table, we're all eating the same thing. We're all around, we're all equal. There is no separation between poor and rich, or male or female or black or white. How do you define or undefine people, really? We all become equal at a table. So Jesus sat at a table and they shared a meal together. He said, you're gonna do this. You're gonna do it often. And when you do it, Think of me and the kind of life that I invite you into. The sacrificial life. The kind of life that says, I'm going to take the stuff that I have, and I don't need to collect it. I don't need to afford it. I don't need to have everything to myself. I'm going to make things right. I want you to go home and tell your friends that you're righteous. I joke about that, but that's the opportunity. And at the table, as we participate in communion, that's exactly what we're doing. We're saying that we are all equal. We all come from the same place. We all end up at the same place. Everything's the same. And so Jesus took bread. I can never get the, the wafer open. I don't know what I'm doing wrong here. There it is. So he took a piece of bread, or in this case, a rice cake, I don't know. He took it ate it. Think of my body. Think of my life, the sacrifices I've made. Then he took some wine, blessed both of them, passed them around. 
You drink it. So this is like my blood. Right? What is life? Life or full of blood. I'm going to give my blood for you. I'm giving my life. I'm giving my essence. I'm making things right. I'm making things just by the way I'm living. And he invites us into that same space. And I believe that every time we sit together and dine together and eat together, Jesus is asking us to remember those things, to participate in that. So as you take your communion, think, and as we pray, think of the ways in which you can be just and right to those around you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to live a just life. God, it is hard. And when I say it is hard, what I'm saying is I'm struggling with it, God. There are days in my life where I, I'm unjust. I want to hoard and collect the things for me. God, help us to see that there is an opportunity to participate, to be a part of, to give all that we have to those around us who need it. God, thank you for the opportunity to be righteous, to make things right, to participate in your justice. Help us to continue to see those opportunities and to meet those needs. God, we pray these things in your name. Thanks for listening to this week's message. We hope you'll join us again next week.